Hello and welcome. My name is Andrew Perryman and I'm going to be talking in this podcast to some friends, colleagues, about a project they started a couple of years back called Urban Monasticism. There's a link to the website in the podcast text. Paul and Jordan Prince are in Paris. Sheila Wittenberg is in Berlin. So, the three of you, I've been intrigued by this thing you've started and I'd love to hear you talk about it. Where did the idea come from? What motivates you? What excites you about it? And where's it headed? But first, I guess you need to introduce yourselves. So can you share a bit about who you are? What brought you to Europe? You're all Americans. How did that come about? And look, we're involved with a mission organization, Communitas, a a church planting organization. What's your experience of that been in the European context, doing mission, planting churches? Has it been a good experience? Has it surprised you? Has it been frustrating? Who wants to go first? Uh, I'll go first. Maybe because I'm tallest. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that, um, that shows up well on a podcast. It does. <laughs> no, I think you can hear it in my voice. You've got the higher just, voice. <laughs> I'm, a little, I'm a little further from the microphone because of my height. <laughs> Um, so I'm Paul Prinz. Uh, I live in Paris uh, with my wife, Jordan, who is right next to me also on with us. Yeah, I mean, we've been here for over five years now, been on, on staff with Communitas in some capacity for, I think, eight years. I think in a lot of capacities, ministry is all of the things that you mentioned. There's good experiences, surprising experiences and frustrating experiences. And then when you add in the cultural component to it, I think maybe that can amplify some of those experiences. I think like I, I think I get more excited about certain interactions because they go well in a third culture. That's not the culture I grew up in. And so I think I get a little more excited when things go well. Uh, and I also think there's a lot of just cultural friction that you go through when you arrive somewhere and you're working on language and you're trying to create life for yourself and your family that you just don't have to deal with when when you're native to that context. Um, and that's mostly, I'd say, on the more frustrating end of things, um, just the amount of time things take and not understanding necessarily what's going on, but yet knowing that you need something to happen and not being clear on how to to get to that. Jordan, since you're there, you got anything since to... I'm here. <laughs> yeah, I guess you asked where a bit about who we are and where we come from. I grew up in a really charismatic evangelical environment. So I knew it would be a bit of a shift coming to Europe. And it has been. <laughs> good, I think good for me. Um, there's been a bit of deconstruction and re reconstruction, figuring out what that looks like in context of of life in Europe, the culture here. Um, I think for me, it's been a little frustrating ministry here. It's slow. I knew it would be slow, but I think it's even slower than I expected. <laughs> Paul and I have a little bit of a, a unique missionary, quote unquote, missionary perspective in that we also run our own business. So that definitely divides our time, pulling, making things a little bit slower <laughs> than they might be otherwise. Less time to work on language and relationships and in a city like Paris, relationships come slow anyway, and they're kind of hard to break into. So on that front, it's been a little frustrating. I think for me, it just feeling like you're not really getting anywhere and you're just kind of spinning your wheels. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I still see hope and still see potential in in the future of what the church can look like here. And 
I, I'm presuming some some of this frustration lies behind the this urban monasticism project as well. I mean, we we'll, we'll get onto that in a moment, but um, it, it it arises out of what five years uh, experience of being in, in a situation. It's that slow process of, of getting to understand a place, uh, what the opportunities are, what the obstacles are, and so on. So. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a part of it. I I don't I I could see even if we had a thriving church community going that this would still be something that that would have occurred. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, we'll get on to that in a moment, Sheila. Tell us about your experience of, of sort of being in uh, Germany. Okay. Um, well, like you said, I'm Sheila. I'm in Berlin, Germany, and I've been here for 20 years now. And the word, I feel like the word missionary and the word church planter, um, neither of those really fit who I am or what I do here. I feel like the word missionary, um, I avoid that word a lot because it has so many associations with colonialism and um, just a lot of negative connotations of um, coming into a place and not respecting the culture. Um, the word church planter, though, is a bit restricting um, because I feel like I do a lot of things here beyond church planting, um, one of which is urban monasticism. Yeah. Um, well, here's how I like to think of myself. In German, we have a word called Wegweise. And a Wegweise, um, it can be a signpost or it can be a person or something that shows the direction, the right direction. And um, I like to think of myself as a vague visor pointing towards God. And I, I really uh, think of my work in terms of what um, St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. So I hope that um, my whole life, everything that I do speaks of God's grace and redemption and transformative power. So that's why I'm here. That's what brought me here. Um, it's worth noting that Germany is the second country that I've lived in that I've been a church planter um, or a big visa. Um, before I lived in Germany, I was in Russia, in Siberia for five years. And that was a wonderful experience before I was married. Um, and my husband, William, and I came here 20 years ago. And as far as our experience here, we have run the gamut of everything. You know, uh, our first five years was just learning how Germans think, what makes them tick. And we kind of had that mentality when you come to a new culture, a lot of times you're negative um, and you compare it to your old culture and you're like, why do the people do this or that, you know? And then we went through the phase where we um, had totally drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and we so identified with German culture that it was hard to even criticize it. And now I think we're more balanced. We see um, the great things about the culture in Berlin. We see the negative things. But we've reached that point where when we visit our home culture in the United States, that we realize we don't fit in there anymore. And um, it's, it's difficult. Obviously, we're not truly German and never will be. And I personally, I feel like I'm a kind of a hybrid of the three cultures that I've lived in. I once heard uh, a missionary uh, many years ago say that God brings you to a country, not necessarily for that country, but for you, to change you. 
And I feel like um, I can see that in my life. I've been so changed um, by the three cultures that, that I've been in. They've been given new perspectives. Yeah, yeah, that's a nice way of thinking about it. A bit, but, but again, the, the the change that takes place to you and the change that happens to you is also part of what it means to be a a missionary, if we can if we can use that word. But it, it's it's I guess it's sort of it's all bound up in the in the the whole experience and the whole process and the virtuous circle going on there, isn't there? That yes, we change right. and uh, our relationship, our missionary relationship or missional relationship to the the context changes as we as we go along and that's that's really good in what you say there all of you it, it sort of captures something of, of what it means to be a missionary particularly in the european context which isn't easy is is that how you feel about it that you know once you sort of got to know the context that you're in that this is probably how it has to be it has to be a challenging frustrating difficult experience or, or you think actually well maybe we should have done this a different way mm-hmm. Maybe there's a, a we, we could have got different results or bigger, more spectacular results if we'd taken a different project. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, okay. What I would say on the outset is that when I first came to Berlin, to Germany, um, I had a very different expectation than what actually has happened over the last 20 years. And part of that was due to my experience in Russia. I came to Russia in the early 90s at a time when a lot of societal structures were literally falling apart. So there was a different reception to the gospel message. Whereas I came to Berlin and, um, you know, no one, there aren't many people suffering in Berlin, especially um, not in 2001 when I first got here. So I had this expectation And it took me a long time to let go of that. And when I let go of that, I stopped thinking of church planting or of the work that I'm doing here as being hard or easy, but rather just watching for the doors that God opens. And what I currently do here, my main focus is children's ministry. And um, I do an amazing form of children's ministry that is basically spiritual mentorship for children. It's called Godly Play. And I would never have found that if I had not gone through this process of letting go of my expectations and letting God open doors. And I I work with an amazing church and um, denomination here. Berlin Project is our church and the FAG is our denomination. And, you know, I would never have knocked on their door at the beginning. So, again, so much of the experience here is a process with God. And if you think about, like, the parable of the mustard seed, you know, um, it takes seeds and plants a while to grow, you know. So many times we come with this expectation of something instantly happening. And that's just not the way God works most of the time. Now, it does get difficult sometimes to explain that to supporting churches uh, because they don't always understand that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, that's another question. We probably uh, we won't <laughs> go into that one now. Jordan, Paul, any any thoughts? Or I mean, I had spent a year, year and a half in France uh, in the early two thousands, uh, so I had a a reasonable sense of what this would be like. Um, and Jordan and I, I think similar to Sheila, have used a little bit different language around our time 
uh, and what we're doing in France. Uh, we tend to call ourselves immigrants. We've even kind of eschewed the whole expat language just because of the privilege that's involved in that. And, and it doesn't reflect our desire to be here long term. You know, citizenship is something that's a, a very important goal for us to become French, uh, at least in passport. As much as, much as we can. <laughs> and, and I think part of that for us is a, a bit of a rejection of kind of the American missionary mindset of the 1900s, which was that kind of at the core, it felt like America was the promised land. And a big part of what you're doing while spreading the gospel is also spreading kind of these American values and this American cultural idea of what this is. And then you see these folks who spent 40, 50 years with a, a people group somewhere in the world, only to retire to some suburb in a city that they grew up in. And to me, that was really sad. I, I have long felt like if God's calling me to the French, then I will live and die with the French. I think that changes the the posture and, and the expectations a bit. I know that it's going to take a while uh, for us to kind of prove our French cred, like our French street cred. You know, it's it's getting the language down, getting the accents down, getting the the way to navigate life in France more fluently and more fluidly. And out of that, it's a transformative process. So it, it changes us internally as well. And I think it puts us in a humble posture as we, as we come and say, hey, look, like I, I've already in five years gained and learned and been transformed in meaningful ways. And then that posture allows me to say, like, look, I, this is what I have to offer in return. And, I, and you know, to, to come at ministry from that position is very different than even what Jordan and I were imagining a decade ago about church planting and coming in and kind of starting with a bang and dreaming about theaters we could be renting to do like ministry in and like all this stuff where it's just like, no, mm. like that's mm. so different. Than I mean, both of you said the sort of same thing, the posture uh, with respect to a context into which you've moved is it, it's a, that's the critical part of this. And it, and it takes some time some trial and error perhaps to, to sort mm -hmm. of find a posture that you're comfortable with jordan anything to add well i think that that posture piece is a really crucial piece in doing ministry whatever that looks like wherever you are really I, and i think that for us anyway realizing that that posture is coming alongside our neighbors rather than treating it as something to conquer and something to to succeed at yeah so so jordan does i mean in 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 that respect is the urban monasticism project is that an outworking of that decision about posture and how how you sort of situate yourself in in paris or in europe or in the world yeah i think that's definitely um something that drew me to co-founding urban monastics is that idea of just walking alongside people living this this lifestyle, this way of life that doesn't put us above anyone, doesn't yeah. I, I think it's it's this posture of light of living. I'm sorry, my keep going. I mean that's that's fine. I let, let's let, I mean carry on or maybe someone else wants to sort of add to this. Is is how did this this idea begin? What was its germination? Uh, it was definitely Paul's idea to begin with, I think. 
Okay, Paul, you have to take ownership of it. Um, but it, I will own it. It was, I think it germinated first in me. And then as I talked with, with people, found others that were interested in doing it together. But for me, at the, the core of it, I think is, I, I had kind of my, my big coming to faith moment in high school and was trying to figure out like God had met me very powerfully in the midst of a suicide attempt and gave me hope in an incredibly tangible way. And so I was then kind of thrust on this journey of trying to figure out, okay, like, so the gospel's real, God's real. Um, how do I connect with God? How do I value this part of my life? Because the first 18 years of my life didn't really give me a lot to go on, even though I knew a lot about God from having grown up in the church and grown up Presbyterian. And so there was a lot of good teaching, I guess. But I found myself, you know, reading a bunch, talking to a bunch of people, going through different programs, trying to like figure things out. And the things that were being told to me didn't work for me. So this idea of like daily quiet time, was tr like, for me, it was a terrible experience. I never met God in it. And I, it just felt like a chore. And what I found myself, the intimate times I had with God was when I was in contemplation and meditation. And just like, I'd go for walks for hours, often in the middle of the night and just connect with God. And, and those were incredibly rich, meaningful moments. And yet I would go to church or ministry that I was involved in and there was no space for this. And not only was there no space, I was a terrible Christian because like, how could you connect with God this way? These, that's not an approved thing to do. Like you need to read this book because it's the book we're all reading right now and it's whatever, or you need to like do these quiet times or do these Bible studies in your small group that are just, you know, somebody's opinions about what's going on in a particular text of the Bible. And I just didn't find any of that all that helpful. And yet, like, contrary to what they were telling me, I was actually growing deeply in my faith. And I was having these very intimate experiences with God. And I felt and could see myself, my personality, my character transforming more and more uh, towards and in the direction of who I uh, see Jesus to be. And so for me, it's like I had all the affirmation that this was valid and this was appropriate. And the more that I then continued to learn, I, I discovered that, you know, this is actually a, a historic pathway uh, within the church, just not really in the evangelical church or the, or the uh, American church, or really the Protestant church struggles with the, the contemplative mystical side of Christianity as well. And so for me, being over here, being separated from that home culture, I think gave me time and opportunity to invest more in this, you know, what would it look like to put more structure to what my experience has been, um, create a way for people to feel validated and welcomed into contemplative Christianity and con these more contemplative practices in a, in a more simple way of life. And, you know, it's been a number of years since Jordan and I started talking about it and I started kind of dropping little bits and pieces to people here and there to see, am I crazy or not? I actually spoke to Andrew in Amsterdam a few years ago and just like, is this a dumb idea? Uh, and I said yes, didn't I? 
you said it could be. <laughs> no, no, you were encouraging. Um, but yeah, and so for me, it was kind of this slow process of understanding that faith needs to be holistic, that faith requires quietness and it requires ritual. It requires, I think, in many ways, us to lead simple lives um, so that the, the, the quiet voice of God is not drowned out by the busyness uh, and the overwhelmingness of a, of a big life. Yeah. And so all of that, we're still in the development phase of urban monasticism. I don't know. How, we, none of us know how long that's going to particularly last. But, you know, trying to synthesize a lot of this together and then all, taking the experiences of us as the founders and the people that have been involved uh, and will be involved in the future to just continue to develop this and better understand it. And I think having an approach to Christian faith that is holistic is something that I didn't see growing up. Um, and I still don't see a lot of in the church. It's very much presented to, to people as like, hey, here are the things you do as a good Christian who's not in ministry, right? Like you, you, have, you have your work to go to. So here's the checklist for the week kind of a thing. Mm. But, uh, a lot of the voice and language that gets heard. And yeah, I, I'm kind of rebelling against that in doing this. The, the, the question that I have, the, you're doing this as part of Communitas, how, which as I, as I say, I mean, is, has been uh, in many ways, at a certain point, certainly a, a fairly conventional church planting organization and, and we've evolved and uh, diversified and we do, a, a, church planting means a lot of different things to, to different people now, which is, I think has been a very interesting development and a very creative development do you, do you see this as fitting well into that that broad approach do you, do you see it in tension with what communitas does as a whole is there a synergy do they complement each other are you or is this just some sort of old maverick thing that you're pursuing um I'm, i i think we may each have different answers for this but i i think it's slightly tangential to the goal uh, the stated goal of communitas, and I and I think that because I don't imagine urban monasticism as something to replace church. I think church as an institution is critically important, but I do believe that we do a disservice to the people who go to our churches when we don't have multiple pathways for spiritual development and uh, and maturity. Uh, within our communities. And so in that sense, I, I can see there being a lot of opportunity for, instead of a small group at a church, maybe there's an urban monastic group, you know, and they meet together and do spiritual practices. Uh, and so in those senses, it, it, it feels very aligned with that idea of like creating faith-based mm. um, communities who love Jesus yeah, I, I see urban monastics being more of a, a partnership alongside the local church. Paul used the word pathway, but I think, and I think that's right. I think it can be another pathway to, for people to find ways to commune with God. I grew up in a really, like I mentioned, a really charismatic environment. And this was this, so this is really pretty new to me, these practices, these more contemplative um, practices and way of life. I think this is um, something that was really missing 
in my upbringing. And I think for a lot of people growing up in the church, I think if we had other things to offer the people in our church, different ways to commune with God, I think it would just enrich their spiritual lives. And I think, honestly, draw more people into the church Hmm. um, because it no longer pigeonholes us into this one idea of what church looks like. Okay, so so you two seem to be more or less on the same page there. Sheila, do you see it differently at all? Well, I would just say that Unitas, as long as I've been in it, has always been about finding innovative ways to create communities of faith. I don't know that we're radical or anything like that, but I think urban monasticism is very innovative. We are an online community, for one thing, and we started this before COVID. So we were um, a sort of forerunners, you know, um, into what was going to come, you know. Now, we didn't know that, you know, but... So you didn't again, get the copyright on it. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, but uh, it was great when, I mean, it was great that we had already started this when everything sort of fell apart with um, having church alive because we were able to provide a nest for people that, um, including ourselves, that suddenly didn't know what to do. So again, we've used the, the word pathway several times. I feel like urban monasticism is a pathway uh, for growth for people. Like, I came um, to the whole interest in monastic rhythms um, about 12 years ago. I grew up in very Bible-based churches, and they're great Mm. churches, and I'm very thankful for them. But about 12 years ago, I had a, a very hurtful experience with church leadership that caused a spiritual crisis in my life. And I really felt that God had abandoned me. And I needed a new, fresh way to find God. And at that time, God started leading me along a contemplative path, first through godly play. And then um, Paul and Jordan and I were on a retreat, uh, a community retreat, um, several years ago in Ireland. It was a soul care retreat, but the curriculum that time was completely different. It was all about um, Celtic spirituality, and particularly Celtic monasticism. And we visited this monastery at Glendalough together, and I just felt God drawing me towards it. And then when I got back to Berlin, I started learning about Ignatian spirituality and Ignatian practices. And all of this just brought so much fresh air into my relationship with God and brought me closer to God, helped me to get over the hurt. Um, simply because it was just a new way of relating to God that wasn't bound up with with some of the past hurt. And um, I, we, um, the past couple of meetings that we've had with Urban Monasticism, there have been some new people, and they've said similar things that, oh, wow, um, I've experienced God in a new way tonight. This is really nice. So that brings me so much joy, um, just the idea that we can help people uh, on their spiritual path, on their spiritual journey, and we're all walking together hand in hand towards God. And yeah, that's a beautiful thing to me. 
But uh, his, historically, uh, the monastic movement or monastic movements at various po- points in church history, I mean, obviously, they, they, they were large scale things, you know, move a bunch of people out into the desert and build a, a monastery there. They were major undertakings, but they, they were... Uh, they were reactionary in in certain ways. They were they were strongly critical. They would happen because people were dissatisfied with the way the church was going, or dissatisfied with the way society was going. So they felt that the only way you could preserve an authentic spirituality was to withdraw. And I mean, obviously, the result was mixed. Uh, Belinda and I, my wife and I, were visiting, just driving around Norfolk a, a few weeks back, came across of the ruins of an abbey there. And you read the story behind it. And by all accounts, this was this was a, a den of iniquity. And it was sort of shut down and everything else. They weren't all wonderfully holy, sacred places, but they, they clearly served, at their best, they served a very powerful purpose within the 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 life and the history, the the witness of the church throughout the ages, and over long long periods of time. Is 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 there any of that in what you're trying to do? What what is what is the vision? What is it evolving toward? Yeah. So I think we may all have different answers to this. You, you said that last time, and then you end up saying the same thing. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> Maybe true. we should start with someone different, Paul. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> I'll 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 round out the back of this question and then <laughs> anyway, I, I I'll seem like I'm the one who's not paying attention. That one. Yeah. Or does it have to how be would you answer that? Well, my answer to that would probably not be a complete answer in all the aspects of your question, but um, I think one aspect of what I really enjoy about urban monasticism is that urban part. It's that living among people as a contrast to yeah. monastic communities that aren't urban, <laughs> um, right? They're, they seclude themselves, they go away. And yes, it is kind of a center for, of somewhat for commerce and gathering of community, but they still kind of pull away um, mm. where we're trying to be very intentional about living among the people that we're living around to kind of bring this to every aspect of our life um, and invite people into that. I think that's, at least for me, that's part of what this, the urban piece gets me excited about is that the opposite of the seclusion. Sheila, any, any? Yeah. When we were at Glenda Lock, um, they told us that the monastery there, we were in the ruins of the monastery and they told us that there would have, um, when the monastery was actually flourishing, there wouldn't have been just monastics inside the walls of the monastery. There were all kinds of other people from the village there. Um, and guests and um, hospitality was a big thing. And so from the very beginning, um, obviously we're not cloistered people, but we use the cloister as a metaphor and we think of sort of the boundaries of our city as being our monastery. And so we're in there with all kinds of other people, um, just like Jordan just said. And our motto, um, if you look on our website, is being present with God, being present with others. and our Western society right now, that's one of our biggest challenges. I was watching a, a um, documentary about Michael Jordan recently on Netflix, and they said about Michael Jordan, the reason why he could win and stay on top was he had an ability to be present in the moment that other people didn't have. That's always stayed with me. And, you know, we're on our smartphones and we have so many thoughts in our head all the time. 
but just learning to be present with God, being present with others, it really makes a difference in how you value your life, how you value other people, how you value the city. One of the tenets of Ignatian spirituality is finding God in all things. And when you're present, you start to find God everywhere in places that you didn't realize that God was there before. Yeah. What do you think, Paul? I think that's all great. <laughs> um, so I, I come at this, I think, a little bit uh, from a different approach than, than Sheila or Jordan do. You know, I've done a fair amount of research into the different monastic traditions, the history of monasticism from the Desert Fathers and Antony and um, to the establishment of the Benedictine order. For me, to call this monasticism is to connect ourselves to that history, to that tradition. And, and one of the things I still struggle with is like, are we honoring and being a natural extension of the richness that all of these people before us have lived in, maintained and transmitted to the from generation to generation or not. And I still struggle with this. Uh, I struggle with the differentiation between monasticism and mendicant. We're not mendicant. That's explicit on the website. We're not friars. Does, do you want to explain um, so people don't have to rush to a dictionary? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then, then what do you I mean can, by mendicant? I can use a bunch of other really fancy sounding words too no, in don't. my description here. <laughs> but uh, the, this is an important distinction. So if you've ever seen like Robin Hood, you got Friar Tuck. So he is a mendicant. Uh, mendicants are traveling ministers, essentially, that also have vows and rules that they live by. But their primary function is to go around and preach the gospel. Monastics, on the other hand, stay home. They stay within the, the cloister and their call and purpose is different. And so it's this challenge of how do we clearly define the way that we are monastic, that we live a life within our cities, within our neighborhoods, that we, even though we do require, like, we don't have institutional backing. We all work. We have to pay our own way. Um, and monastics worked. I mean, you can go to monasteries and you'll see the yeah. the monastics out in the fields working, writing, reading, whatever. They're, they're doing work. Um, and so some of this is just an educational process for people to help them understand that all of this is a part of what it means to be monastic. While at the same time, you know, this is, I think, the area that we're still developing, and I don't know that we've developed it well at this point. I had hoped at this point in our development that one, we would be further along with things like our translation work and our community building. We had actually, Jordan and I had intended on, a, on having um, regular groups meeting in our home um, and maybe in another space to actually meet together, to pray, to, to do communion um, and have conversations in addition to what's happening online. I don't imagine urban monasticism as being a virtual community. Uh, urban monasticism, I think, demands the presence of others physically in our midst. And I think part of that is that what I believe our rule and this way of life 
is expecting of people is really hard. In some ways, I think it's like standing in a, in a quick stream in the cities that we're in. And I think to do that alone is going to be difficult. And so I, I hope and pray and expect that over time that we would see, you know, city-based communities pop up where, where we can encourage one another to live into the, into our shared values, understanding that like our, our rule on our website, so monastic communities would have a commitment or a rule. So like the rule of St. Benedict is the most famous one kind of cause it was first. And other monastic orders and mendicant orders have kind of modeled themselves to greater or lesser extents after that Benedictine rule to kind of put their own perspective and flavor of monasticism or mendicantism on what they're doing. And we're no different than that. We also have a rule that is still in the process of being developed. And we have these conversations, many of which revolve around talking through a point of the rule. Um, And we've changed and rewritten stuff based on the conversations we've had. Uh, with our group, either to be more clear, more permissive, uh, less permissive, things like that. But it's it's difficult to to live some of these things in in urban centers. You know, living a simple life, living with less, living um, a slower life. Some of the things we haven't talked about yet, but it's like I live in Paris, and my primary vocation historically has been as a, a software engineer for twenty some years now. And it's like, there's opportunities that would require me to travel and like, well, will I do that? Like if, if this is my, if this is my cloister, Paris is my cloister. Like, will I leave Paris for work? And like, I'm in a position where like, no, like right now, my answer is no to that. That plays into other narratives as well, doesn't it? Obviously about the climate change and environmental impacts and... and Climate change, it it plays into capitalism, it plays into colonialism. I think in many ways we are trying to do this in an anti-capitalist kind of way. I don't know exactly what that means practically, but I do know that it's like we're not going to sell random swag with our logo on it to make money. We're actually creating our own translations of biblical texts and liturgical texts so that we don't have to pay licensing fees. We don't have to worry about any legal stuff around that. And so there's a lot that goes into some of these statements that like, we don't want to be play into the capitalism and consumerism of society. Okay, well, what does that mean? that actually has real consequences. Because if you look at the way a lot of ministries raise raise support or like raise awareness around what they're doing, like we're not going to make urban monastic stickers for people to put on their laptops or, you know, this kind of stuff. I've got to make like, my own one, have I? <laughs> I would be very confused when I see it. You know, and and some of this is that I think it is a critique of of the broader culture. I think it's a critique of the way that the church has just uncritically embraced these aspects of the wider Western society that we live in. Yeah. And like, I love our logo, which is great because I made it, but it's like, I'm not going to go slapping that on everything because me not doing that's actually a statement. And, and so it's this challenge. But then you've like, got to find the, the alternatives to that, haven't you? Uh, I mean, go back to Sheila's, what Sheila was saying about this, this is a metaphor and then you're trying to find ways of, of living that out. You still need something, don't you, that, that makes this distinctive and visible, something to, to point to and say, well, this is what it means. We're not, we're not living behind the four walls of a, a monastery. 
so you haven't got that sort of great big edifice there so that people recognize and you know, we're not dressing we're not putting on robes to, to sort of mark you out this is part of the challenge isn't it so those, those sort of behavioral distinctives or the the narrative that you're developing around what you're doing uh presumably then become the critical way of, of you know giving identity to this and this is where the development piece is critical like no like we don't have any sort of liturgical garments at this point at this could point we, could we maybe like maybe there are things that you know maybe we put shawls on when we pray at home maybe we i don't know like we haven't had some of these conversations and like that doesn't necessarily feel all that important to me at this point but it's this challenge for me of like, yes, there's a certain metaphorical element to this, but there's also an element to it that, that like, I'm not speaking in metaphors when I say some of these things. And so there is a certain rigor and a certain expectation mm. to being an urban monastic. And I think it's important again, to reiterate, like this is a subset, like this is a small slice of like the, the Christian world. Um, you can be a faithful Christian without being an urban monastic. You can disagree with points on our on our commitment uh, and still be a Christian. Because again, like to be monastic in one sense does mean to be set apart and to reject parts of the world. And so the challenge that we have as we continue developing this is, you know, what are those things that we reject? And then how do we go about having that be more than just a conceptual idea and what does that look like for us then in practice in how we go about yeah. uh, both creating urban monasticism as well as you know living the those monastic rhythms in our days weeks months and years and again like this is that part where like, i wish i had better answers but like i just don't right now like i know where we are and i have a general sense of where we're going but I don't know even at what point we're going to be to a place where we feel like we have a sense that, yeah, we're kind of where I think this is going to end up. I mean, this, I, I find, I do find this fascinating. I mean, part of it is sort of the, the thinking out and the living out something new, well, new, old and new. It, it's an exciting journey to be on. The way the world is changing, where the world is going is part of this. I mean, maybe that's partly why it's not so clear at the moment what this is becoming, because it, that will become more apparent as uh, as the world changes around us. So, I mean, you didn't predict COVID and a pandemic and, and lockdown, but that must be somewhat formative for, for what you've become and somewhat limiting, uh, perhaps, for, for the time being. But, but these, it's, a, it's a, an ongoing sort of dialogue between... This this vision and and the world around us and I, and I personally I mean I think the climate aspect of it where we're heading in those terms is the demand for a simpler way of existing in the world could prove to be a, a, a powerfully prophetic um, and a significant part of this but but I mean somewhat contrary I think I feel to what you were saying earlier this there is there is a potential for for being quite radical. And I mean, whether that's a choice that you make, whether it's sort of something that's thrust upon you, do do you see that? Is that is that fair? Is there a sort of subversive part to it? Is it potentially controversial? 
are you going to have to work hard to maintain sort of good relations <laughs> with the rest of the church and and show that this you know this really brings something good to to the life of the church as a whole i mean are, are you are you a bunch of radicals <laughs> i don't know um, in a, in a, in a modest know. way, I mean, we're, unusual. <laughs> we're unusual people, I would say for sure. Just our life journey, and um, that we find ourselves all the way around the world from where we started out when we were born. But I just wanted to say that I think how urban monastic urban monasticism develops, it's an organic process. It'll also be influenced by who joins us, and there are different ways to be involved with us. There are people that really want to accept our rule and that they are fully urban monastic. And there are other people who just want to come to our meetings and enjoy the community and the spiritual growth. That doesn't answer your question about whether we're radical or not. Um, I think time will tell whether we're radical or not. I, I don't, I guess I don't think in those terms, Andrew, I just think of um, I'm following the path that God's leading me on and we'll see where that goes. Mm. And hopefully I have the courage to go places that may be uncomfortable for me. Um, and we probably will step on people's toes. We've already, we've already stepped on some people's toes with some things in our rule. I don't mind the controversy because I think that is, I think if we allow ourselves to be part of conflict in a constructive way that we all grow from it. So that doesn't bother me. Good. I think yes and no to, to answer your question. We've already definitely gotten oh, questions. Um, I'll just leave it as questions about what we're doing. Um, Paul and I have anyway, personally of whether or not this is, are we preaching the gospel? Are we um, doing the good missionary thing? And of course, this looks different. And I think that, you know, there's going to be a little bit of conflict within the church community. Um, but I think, kind of like Sheila said, I think if we're being faithful to where God's leading us, I think that's all we can do to be faithful. But also, I mean, I look at the person of Jesus and see what he did. He was praying regularly. He was having communion with his people. There's our core practices and our core, the core of what urban monastics is, is kind of clinging to those things that, of what Jesus did and taught and lived out himself. That should, really shouldn't be very controversial, should it? It, it shouldn't, no. but surprisingly, mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. telling people to fast Oddly controversial. Yeah. I mean, in some regards, we are very orthodox and very conservative in the sense that what we're doing is saying, hey, you know, the liturgy of the hours, the divine office is this thing that's been around for 2000 years that's been largely ignored by the Protestant church. I don't know where to put the Anglicans there in no man's land between the two. Oh, they're all over the place. Yeah. But from one end of the spectrum to the other. But they've got the Book of, of uh, Common Prayer yeah. Uh, yeah. that, you know, especially since Vatican II has more closely aligned with the Liturgy of the Hours. And it, and like, in some ways, it's this process of, I think, rediscovery is language that we use a lot. Rediscovering things that maybe should not have been lost. We do owe an immense gra- debt of gratitude to Vatican II without some of the the work that's come out of that. 
uh, streamlining the liturgy of the hour, the divine office, you know, the push for vernacular texts and vernacular work that made it more accessible to people. Even for us, like the auspice under which I'm doing so much of the translation work is that, that push for vernacular work. And so that is kind of our cover for what are you doing and how is this orthodox? Because the reality is like we have translation guidelines on our website for, for the work we're doing and it's, you know, inclusive language and it's avoiding gendered terms when possible. And, you know, we've got a whole bunch of things laid out that make our translation work more than just avoiding licensing fees. I believe that anyone who God would love to hear from in prayer should be able to find themselves welcomed in prayer. And that's a pretty radical statement. The fact that we have three founders so far and two of them are women is a pretty radical statement. The fact that our rule would allow married people to be involved without their spouses, you know, that's also in some ways kind of a radical statement. Part of our rule says you cannot kill. And that excludes a lot of people from being able to be monastics with us because the way that we interpret that is that you can't have a vocation that would expect you in any capacity to kill someone. So like law enforcement officers, military, like there's a long list of people now that are out that if you're in the American church in particular, that's sacrilegious that we've done that. Not to debate the merits of different theologies around violence and war uh, and state power, but I don't see any history of monastic communities wielding the sword. You had the one pseudo-monastic Templar thing uh, that was just the Pope's fancy army and he got excited about there for, for quite a while. But, you know, these monastic communities were, were regularly attacked, particularly in, the, in Britain. Um, you know, when the Vikings started coming over, they, they learned very quickly that there was a lot of good stuff in those, in those monasteries and in those abbeys. Yeah. So like in some ways, like this is a very radical thing because we're confronting some of the idols of the West in how we're approaching ministry and how we're approaching our way of life, you know? And I think that present with God and present with others piece also demands that we actually engage in what's happening in our communities. How can I be present with my neighbor if my neighbor is oppressed? Well, I have to sit with them in their oppression. And then as I can, I have to try to, to, to overthrow the, the cause of it. We're not some anarchist group that's going to go around and, and burn things down. I mean, we literally have a, a rule in our organization that says, no, this is what we agree to live by and, and blah, blah, blah. But there is an element of like, we need to be engaged. Like we need to be present with the, the life and challenges of the cities that we find ourselves in. And what does that look like? And how do we do that? And, yeah. and some of them are things like climate change. Some of them could be social issues, racial issues, religious issues. You know, how do we stand with in secular Western Europe, which is gives great deference to Christianity uh, and not so much to any other faith. You know, how do we stand with our other religious neighbors? 
who are feeling the the brunt of oppression from the government, particularly in France. That's a newer thing here. Yeah, I mean, I'm beginning to feel that there's you know, we should do another one of these and and start really sort of digging into the implications of these rules then that you've that you've set yourselves. Yeah, and I'm obviously picking out some of the ones that are going to show more of the the like radical side. But then there's also stuff where it's just like, don't own more than you need. Okay. Uh, that, that's going to be another conversation. You know, it's be, just like, yeah, that's, day. that's pretty Can simple. Can I add something, Andrew? I was going to say another challenge that's really important to me. And I think to Paul and Jordan as well, that we, you know, address at some point. Um, right now we're mainly um, a group of white people. We, it's important to us to put some thought into how do we um, have more diversity in our group? So that'll be a challenging aspect for us as well. Understood. The last question I had for you um, is sort of a bigger picture thing. Uh, you know, you've come to Europe for the sake of the, the church in Europe at one level and for the sake of the glory of God in Europe at a higher level. But, but how, do you, how do you see the future of the church? Are you optimistic, not optimistic? What troubles you? What gives you hope? And then, then maybe just any lessons to be learned i think we're probably running out of time to 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 really give uh, this uh, the attention that it deserves i personally feel very optimistic about the future of the church uh where i live in particular uh because only two percent of the population in berlin are churchgoers you see a lot of ecumenical activity going on and like our church uh, the church that i work with here berlin project um, we regularly have events with the Lutheran Church in our neighborhood and the Catholic Church and the Charismatic Church. And so I, I feel like um, people aren't as concerned about doctrines or they, I mean, let me rephrase that. They're not letting doctrinal differences be as divisive as they have been in the past. And that you see, you see more just love and um, and a spirit of working together among Christians. And I think that that's huge when people see um, Christians loving one another and then loving the city by doing the work, the work of Jesus. And I think people notice that. I think one of the big lessons we, we've learned from COVID is you can't hold on to your sacred cows. And you have to be open to new ways of doing things. And at least where I live, I see a lot of churches um, thinking about that now. And how can we do things differently? Since everything has changed anyway, how do we go forward now? You guys in Paris, how, how does the future look from Paris? I would say I'm hesitantly optimistic. <laughs> um, I, you don't have to be optimistic. I mean, yeah. Well, I think there's um, there definitely needs to be a shift from what church looked like previously without bringing in what church looks like, successful church looks like from other cultures. I actually do see uh, an interest, a growing interest in living more simply, living more, you know, within kind of the community that you're that you're put in. Just in the secular realm, I think like I think that's a important thing to people, and so I think at least for urban monastics, I think it's a nice gateway into inviting them into something local and being present with people around them. But let's just bring some Jesus into it. I'm I'm hesitantly optimistic. I think 
if the church can can adapt from where it has been, especially in Europe, I think there can be really some beautiful things that will come out of it. And I think like even as you said to mention back to your comment about COVID and people being more aware and um, needing to you know be more attentive to social issues and climate issues and all these things. I think a new version kind of 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 church and how we how we experience Jesus in our midst mm. will have bits of those pieces in it. I don't know. I th- for me, I think that's a shift that the church needs to embrace going forward. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm optimistic. I do believe the church is in the West here is still going through this process of grieving the loss of their status in culture. For centuries now, they've been very prominent. They were often at the tables of power, helping craft and lead society. And I don't know that that's where the church ever should have been. I I don't personally believe that that's where the church should have been. And so I think it's this process of learning. Society has moved on from us in, in in many respects. And so how do we be that voice in the wilderness, calling people to God and and calling the society as a whole to, to love justice, to love mercy, to care for those who Christ loves, who's everyone. You know, so it's like, I think it's that process of like, how do we relearn our story from a new position? Uh, one that, it, that, that lacks any sort of institutional, like proper institutional power. You know, part of our rule, again, is to be skeptical of money and power uh, and those who have it. And so, like, how do we, like, be willing to critique society? And I think that the weight of that critique depends on the, the model and the life that we live. And so I think there's an opportunity for the church to live into that and to, to actually kind of own that space and say, look, like, I'm, I'm excited that we're out of the seat of power. Because now it allows us to not have to rationalize, you know, is this a French thing to do to X, Y, Z? It's like, no, but it can be a, it can be a Christ-like thing to do. You know, and I, and I think as you get that separation between the identity of, you know, your culture and your institution, it gives you a freedom that, that the institutional church and the church in, in Europe hasn't had for a very long time. And so I'm excited for that as that becomes more and more real. And that can only happen uh, as we kind of go through this painful process of uh, the continued kind of secularization of society and the further kind of like isolation of the church from those halls of power. And that actually gives me great joy and excitement to see happening because I think that creates an opportunity and, and freedom for the church to live into her prophetic and redemptive call on, on the world. Thank you. It's nice to see you guys smiling. I, I can see uh, see you on video here, and uh, there's a broad smile on everyone's face as we um, reach that point, which is good. I yeah, I, I would love to sort of have that and do another one of these sometime. I, uh, we'll get uh, if that makes sense um, to you. Have a, have a think about that. But for now, thank you very much for talking uh, about yourselves, about your vision for church uh, in Europe. 
uh, and also in particular about the uh, urban monasticism project. And uh, what does one say? I wish you all the best. No, I'm not going to wish you all the best with that. I, I'm excited about it. You know, wh whatever comes of it. You know, whether whether it's something that I would personally engage in mentally, intellectually, or or imaginatively, I I love the concept. And we'll see. I'll try and hang out with you um, a bit more regularly. But uh, thank you very much for for talking. Yeah, thank you thank for inviting us. Thanks for having us. And anyone listening can yeah. join us. And how can they do that? Do you want to wave to your mum or anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> you want to put an ad in? I'll I'll put the uh, the website in the in the details and. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just do a little blib here at the end and you can put it wherever you want. If you'd like to learn more about urban monasticism or you'd want to join us, uh, either just for a, a few times or more long term, uh, just feel free to reach out to Sheila, Jordan, or I. You can also learn more on our website, urbanmonastic.org. And we look forward to connecting with you.